more observant of you uh, may have noticed this is the second year in a row, which I've been, uh, along with David, the only member of the pastoral staff in town on the weekend of the family camp. This is primarily because Debbie's uh, idea of roughing it is a black and white TV in the limo, and uh, so she'd just soon stay home, enjoy the comforts of her own place, so that keeps me in town for the weekend. I think one of the things that I can safely say is true for all of us that are here this morning is that we want our lives uh, to count. Uh, We want our lives to matter, uh, to have some significance. We want our lives to make a difference in the lives of people around us. We want to leave some mark on the people that are in our sphere of influence, our children and our friends, the people that we work with, people that we recreate with. We want our lives to count so that when our lives are over, we can look back and see that that our lives have amounted to something, that there was value to what we did, and that our lives uh, were significant and that that we had an influence on people. I think all of us have that desire, and I believe that's a hunger that God has built into us. He's made us that way, to long for that kind of significance and influence in life. And a good deal of the revelation of Scripture is addressed to this question of how that can become true of us. What we need to understand in order to live lives that are lives of influence and will result in change in the lives of the people around us. Well, if we look at the last half of chapter 15 in the book of Romans as we draw our study in this book to a close, I think we can learn three things from the Roman Christians and three things from Paul's life. Six principles or truths altogether I'd like to draw from this section that if we will trust God to make real in our own experience, we will find our lives characterized by an increasing influence and impact on the lives of other people. So there are six of these principles or truths that I want to draw from this passage with you. The first three of them are found in verse 14. Now, as a background to this section, Paul, as you remember from our uh, previous studies, has been dealing with the issue of gray areas, how we evaluate each other, how we look at each other as believers in areas where the scriptures are silent, where they're not explicit about what sorts of behavior are appropriate for believers. And Paul's point is that each of us in those gray areas, must make up our own mind before God about what is appropriate for us. And the responsibility of us then in relationship with other believers is not to judge or to look down on them, not to judge them for exercising freedoms which we do not have the freedom to exercise, nor to look down on them because they have certain restrictions that they have chosen that we we have not. Now, Paul is anxious in verse 14 to clear up any misunderstanding about his evaluation of the Romans. And he says this about them in concluding his discussion on this subject. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. So he's aware that the Roman believers uh, had the necessary equipment to carry out this ministry of of gentle admonition themselves, and Paul wants to make sure that he understands that about them. But in so doing, I think he reveals three things about the Roman church that if they are true of us, will give us the same kind of impact that this church had on its culture and the people in contact with it. The first thing that Paul says that's essential for a ministry or a life of influence is to be filled with goodness. It's the first thing that Paul observed about the Romans is that they were full of of goodness. He later will say in this very same verse that this issues eventually in some sort of admonition. 
where we actually confront someone with the truth. But Paul says, in order for that kind of ministry to be effective, the place you must begin is to be filled with goodness. I think what Paul means by this is that if we long to have an influence on people around us, we have to have pure motives. In other words, our motives in relating to them must honestly be that we care for them and that we love them and we want to minister to them and to encourage them. Our motive for being being involved with them is, is not to be some sort of ego gratification. And when we speak to others, we're not to do so just to lash out in some kind of defensiveness, to protect our own turf or to justify our own behavior. Our motives need to be pure. If we are full of goodness, if people understand that we really do care about them and the things that we say to them, we say to them because we truly love them and want to minister to them, then they will be able to hear what we say. Uh, if people know that you love them and care for them, they'll be willing to hear almost anything from you and, and come back for more. But if they doubt your basic goodness, if they doubt that you're really there to minister to them, then it raises defensiveness. So Paul says the first key ingredient is to be full of goodness, to have pure motives in relating to people. Second thing he says is true about the Romans is that they were filled with all knowledge. Paul saw people uh, as like a reservoir which could contain truth. And what he observed about the Romans is that their reservoir of knowledge, their understanding of the truth of God, was full that they had access to the truth of God. And I think this is the second thing that Paul says we need to, to live lives that truly count. We need to know the truth. We need to be filling up our reservoir of knowledge, increasing the storehouse of God's truth that we have at our disposal. This is one of the reasons why we gather together on Sunday mornings to study the scriptures together. One of the reasons, obviously, is that we ourselves might be ministered to directly from the truth of God's word. But there's a second reason we gather together, and that is to learn truth, to understand truth, which we, in turn, might be able to impart to someone else. Probably all of us have had this experience of sitting in a Sunday morning service here, listening to the message and saying, boy, this is just exactly what X or Y needs to hear. Boy, I wish they were here this morning to hear this. Well, God's plan may be for them to hear that from you rather than from one of us. So we're here to be filled with knowledge in order that we might have this knowledge to impart to others. Now, if there's a combination of goodness and truth in our relationship with others, then it will result in very constructive sorts of change. On the other hand, if there's an absence of goodness and an absence of knowledge in our efforts to uh, correct others, it'll do great damage. I followed with some interest the career of uh, B.J. Thomas, a singer who became a Christian about uh, 12 years ago or so. And as he grew in his young faith, he developed a desire to stay in the entertainment industry. And as uh, Jesus himself taught, to be salt and light in this dark place. He saw that the entertainment industry, many of the people in it were in the grip of certain things which were destroying them. And he wanted to stay right in that environment and be a witness for Christ, be salt and light. And the way he put it, he wanted not to be a Christian entertainer, but an entertainer who was a Christian. Well, he found almost uh, as soon as he decided to implement this philosophy of ministry, he received a great deal of criticism from believers. Constant criticism, accusing him of selling out and compromising and singing the devil's music and being uh, co-opted by the world. And in the last couple of albums that he produced, gospel albums he produced, 
Each of them had songs in there which I felt were a plaintive plea on his part to believers to try to understand his reason for what he was doing and to pray for him if they had concerns and to understand and be tolerant of him. But the uh, criticism continued and increased. And the last word uh, that I've heard is that he's turned his back on the Lord and ministry altogether. Now, I don't want to blame it on believers who thoughtlessly criticized him without goodness and without knowledge, but I know that it, that it contributed. These people did not have his best interests at heart. They did not have an understanding of the truth of Scripture about our responsibility to be salt and light in the world and consequently did a great deal of harm to someone who was honestly, genuinely seeking to serve God. So goodness and knowledge are two key ingredients in our ministry to one another. Now then thirdly, Paul says in the end of verse 14 that the Roman Christians were also able to admonish one another. That because they were full of goodness, their motives were pure, because they were filled with knowledge, they knew the truth of God, they were therefore as a result able to admonish one another. In the Williams translation of the New Testament, this verse is translated, you are competent to counsel one another. Some of you may be familiar with the book by J. Adams by that title, and it's from this verse that he takes his basic approach to counseling. One of the things that's been rediscovered in the recent past uh, in the life of the church is the ministry of the saints. And this ministry of counseling one another is certainly one of the glorious ministries which is being restored to the saints And uh, this is a great uh, asset to those that are in professional ministry, pastors and counselors, to have an entire body of people who are carrying out this counseling ministry with one another, not simply depending on the paid professionals to do it. But this is a responsibility and privilege that each of us in this room have. If we're filled with goodness and knowledge, we become competent and sufficient to counsel one another. We don't have to instantly refer every problem that a friend has to a professional. If we're filled with goodness and knowledge, we can give them help ourselves. I think one of the reasons we need to admonish one another is that we really don't see ourselves very clearly. We need each other to serve as a mirror to us. If you're out uh, having dinner and you've got some mustard on your chin, you need whoever is sitting across the table from you to gently point that out so you, you can clean it up. We need that kind of help from one another. Now, the word admonish is not a bad word, Uh, If you look it up in the Webster's, you'll see that there's a note of gentleness with this word. There's a note of confrontation and rebuke and firmness, but there's also a note of of, uh, gentleness and solicitousness about it. It's a word that conveys a real interest and a concern for the person that's being admonished. Literally, the Greek word simply means to put something in mind, and I really like that. It helps me to understand what I'm to do when I admonish someone simply to sit down with them and put something in their mind. Say to them quite simply, there's something I've observed I'd like to bring to your attention or something I've noticed that I'd like you to think about or a question that has come to my mind that I'd like to talk over with you. And then you gently explain the truth as you see it. And that's admonition. And it's an important ministry for us to have with one another. Now, I've observed also in... uh, carrying out this ministry myself, that it's important to, if you're going to cleanse someone, to pay attention to the temperature of the water. I'm an expert at giving children uh, baths after a little over six years of practice, but one thing I've discovered that I still need work on is getting the temperature of the water just right. My tendency almost invariably is to make the bath water too hot. 
Now, my desire is to cleanse my children, and they're willing to be cleansed, but if the water's too hot, they don't want to get in. And if it's too cold, they don't want to get in. And that's something that, uh, that I've learned about helping people, is that if we come across too hot, if we're scalding and angry and lash out, then people don't want to be cleansed. And if we're cold and icy and aloof and distant, again, we drive people away from us. What enables us to cleanse others is when the temperature of the water is warm and there's gentleness in our approach. This ministry of admonition is something we need to have with people around us as God gives us opportunity with uh, our children and with our friends. I had an opportunity on our vacation to admonish my four-year-old uh, son. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago we were on vacation and he was having one of those mornings where he was a little cranky and a little fussy and just kind of making uh, life miserable for everybody in the, in the household. And so I took him to the back room and I said, uh, J.D., I said, Bud, you're about this far from a spanking. It's just a lot of little things been been adding up this morning, and you're getting real close to a spanking. It's not going to take a whole lot more to put me over the edge and to give you spanking. Do you understand? And J.D. looked up at me with these soulful brown eyes and says, Dad, have you had it up to here? So sometimes our ministry of admonition might have unpredictable results, but we are nevertheless still entrusted with this responsibility. Now you notice that Paul says we are to admonish one another, that this is a mutual ministry to we're to have with each other. Uh, it's, uh, although it's difficult, it's a lot more fun to be the admonisher than it is to be the admonishee. But this means that since this ministry is mutual, there will be times in life where we will need to be admonished. And that's essentially what Paul has done in chapters 14 and 15. And notice to whom he is admonishing. He is admonishing people who are filled with goodness and filled with knowledge and able to admonish one another. And yet he realized here was a blind spot that he needed to bring to their attention. So we need to have a constant willingness to be taught and instructed, a teachability about us that we carry with us to the, to the end of our lives, where we're always willing to consider what someone else might say to us. Even if it's done for the wrong motives, done in the wrong way, we need to be willing to say, Lord, help me sift through what I've just heard and uh, identify that which you want me to understand and respond to. We never outgrow the need for this kind of, of admonition. Now, it takes uh, several things in verse 15 to carry out a ministry of admonition. I think we can identify with what Paul will say here. Paul says about his own ministry of admonition to them in verse 15, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. There's three things it takes to carry out a ministry of admonition. The first thing is it takes courage. Paul says, I have written to you very boldly. He had to screw up his courage to say what he had to say to these Roman believers. And all of us know that. When we've observed something about someone around us that we love, we want to help them deal with this area which is causing them and others trouble. There's a basic fear that sets in because the relationship will be put at risk if we bring this subject to their attention. There is a good deal to fear. And so it takes courage to be able to do this. And the time will come in a relationship where we will need to take a deep breath and, and plunge right in. 
take a deep breath and make that phone call to set up a time with coffee or a time over lunch. And then in the conversation over lunch to take a deep breath and say, Lord, here we go. It takes courage. Second thing it takes is the willingness to remind people of truth that they already know. Notice Paul is saying to them that I know that you already know this truth, but you need to be reminded of it. A couple weeks ago I saw a grown man with a little string on his finger to remind him of something. I've got one of the world's worst uh, short-term memories, as my wife can attest to. And this is something that all of us need. We need to be reminded of the truth. And you may find yourself in a conversation with someone reminding them of something that you know that they know, but they have lost sight of it. And so what you say may sound to them like a cliche, and yet if it's the truth and they need to hear it, we need to be willing to remind each other of that truth. And we need to be willing to be reminded of truth without saying, I already know that, because it's something we may have lost sight of. As an uh, amateur golfer, I know that one of the uh, key ingredients to a good golf swing are foundationals. You've got to have certain fundamentals in place of weight distribution and shoulder turn and lead with your hips and uh, right kind of a grip and all of those sorts of things. Don't move your head, weight on the inside of your right foot whole number of foundationals that are, that are critical to a successful golf swing. And even accomplished, experienced golfers will sometimes forget one of these fundamentals, and they'll begin to do things improperly. And what they need is to be reminded of this basic foundational component uh, of the golf swing in order to, to be restored to what they, what they want to be. And the same thing is true in the spiritual life. It's very easy for even the most mature of us to get some truth or some dimension of the Christian life slightly out of focus. And we need someone to come alongside and, and remind us. Maybe a very foundational truth. Maybe struggling with guilt over some, something I've done. And I may need someone to gently remind me that you are justified by faith, not by works. Or maybe in a financial panic and anxious and may need someone to come alongside and remind me of Jesus' promise that the Father knows what you need and, and will take care of you. Or if you're involved in some sort of ministry and feeling a tremendous pressure to make it succeed, you may need to be reminded of the fact that it all depends on God. It doesn't depend on you. This is the kind of ministry we need to have with one another. Well, where do we find the courage and the willingness to remind people? Same place that Paul found it in the end of verse 15 because of the grace that was given me from God. In other words, when we're in that kind of situation, we need to say, Lord, I need your grace. I need your strength and help to do this. Lord, here we go. Now, why are we to do this with one another? What gives us the right to do this? The world would probably look at this and consider it just meddling in other people's affairs. The philosophy of the world is live and let live. And yet the biblical approach to relationships is much different than that, where we're to be intimately involved in the lives of people and seeking to, to be change agents in their lives. What gives us the right to do that? I think Paul explains that in verse 16. when He says he was given grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul saw himself because of the grace that God had given him as a priest who made offerings to God. The offerings that Paul brought to God were the changed lives of the Gentiles. Now, the same thing is true of us. We have been given a responsibility to be priests to one another. 
Martin Luther was the one that rediscovered for the church the priesthood of all believers, that all of us who are believers are in the ministry. All of us have been given spiritual gifts and a responsibility to minister to one another. So it's our job. It's responsibility that God has given to us. Priests have two functions. One is to represent man to God in prayer. And the second function is to represent God to man, to remind man of the truth and the glory of God's riches. Now we see a fourth principle in verses 17 and 18 in having a life that counts, a life of influence. Not only are we to be full of goodness and full of knowledge and willing to admonish, but in verses 17 and 18 we need to realize that it all depends upon God. Paul says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Now you notice that there is a right kind of pride for a believer to have. Paul says, I have found a basis for boasting. So there is a right kind of pride that a believer may have, as well as the wrong kind of pride. Well, what is the right kind of pride? Well, I think that's what Paul explains here. Paul understood clearly that there was nothing about himself that explained the success of his ministry. He realized he was weak and he was inadequate. And yet he realized that Christ was doing a work through him, that Christ was using him as a vessel to reach other people. One of the really glorious truths about Christianity is that it teaches us that Jesus Christ, the same man who lived a flawless life on earth 2,000 years ago, is willing and able by faith to come in and take up residence in each one of us and to live out in the midst of our ordinary circumstances the same life that he lived on earth 2,000 years ago. This is a marvelous mystery that God in the person of Christ is willing and able to come in and take up residence in the inner spirit of each individual life. This is a bit difficult to explain, particularly to a three-year-old. I read in uh, Dobson's most recent book about a three-year-old who had just had this truth explained to him or to her. Her mother had explained that if she believed in Jesus, he would come and live in her heart. And the mother could see the three-year-old trying to process this information. Later in the day, the girl crawled up on her mother's lap and put her ear up to her chest. And her mother just uh, watched this for a moment and said, uh, Well, honey, what are you doing? And she said, Well, I'm listening to Jesus in your heart. And she let this go on for another minute. And she said, Well, well, what do you hear? And she said, Well, sounds like he's making coffee to me. So, <laughs> so. so this concept can be difficult to understand, but it is radically true that the, that the risen Lord... And this is really the secret of the Christian life, that he is willing to take up residence in my ordinary, humble life and to do a work in me, to transform me and to change me, but also to do a work through me, to accomplish something through me in my ordinary circumstances, with my ordinary resources. Now, when that happens, when Christ accomplishes something through me, that is something for which I can justifiably be proud because the credit goes entirely to Jesus Christ. I was thinking this past week of the Sistine Chapel in connection with this. 
that when you look at the, the Sistine Chapel, you see uh, artwork of, of magnificence. And it's a credit to Michelangelo. Now, Michelangelo had to use something to do that. He used ordinary paint brushes and ordinary paint and produced a masterpiece with that. Now, that's the perspective of the New Testament, that we are ordinary brushes and ordinary paint, but in the hands of a master, of Jesus Christ, who lives in us and through us, extraordinary things can be accomplished by ordinary people. And that's our hope, see, in having a life that counts. Uh, we're inclined to kind of take stock of our own resources and see how much intelligence or education or willpower we have to bring to the task. And we find them woefully inadequate. But it doesn't depend on us because Christ is the one who is at work in us. And as he did in the life of Paul, he is available to work through us to accomplish his task. And that's the great hope of the gospel. Now, in this section, Paul describes a little bit of the uniqueness of his ministry, and I want to uh, just draw this to your attention in passing. We see something of his heartbeat as an apostle. And I see several things in this paragraph that explain the uniqueness of Paul's ministry. First, we see in verse 16 that he was an apostle to the Gentiles. The rest of the apostles were called to plant the church among the Jews, but Paul alone of the original apostles was called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Secondly, we see in verse 19 that his ministry was carried out in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. That is, that everywhere that Paul went in his ministry, miracles followed. The sick were healed. The dead were raised from from the dead. uh, Demons were cast out of people. And these miracles were called both signs and wonders. They were a sign of the presence of God in his ministry, bearing witness to the reality of the gospel. And they were wonders because the response of people was amazement. They were blown away by the sorts of things that were done through Paul's ministry. Now, another uniqueness is found in verse 19 and 20 and 21. So that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Another part of the uniqueness of Paul's ministry was, uh, like Star Trek, he was to go where no man had gone before. It was his specific task to lay a foundation for the temple that God was building. And once the foundation was laid, he moved on. Uh, The imagery that he uses is that God is like the general contractor in building this temple. And Paul was one of the subcontractors. It was his task to come in and pour the footings and lay the foundation. And once that work was done, he entrusted the building of the temple to the ordinary gifted saints in the body and would move on to a new site and lay a foundation there. As a result, Paul said he'd ministered all the way from Jerusalem, down in the southeast corner of the Mediterranean, all the way around as far as Illyricum. Now, I didn't have any idea where Illyricum was, so I looked it up, and it said it's present-day Yugoslavia and Albania, and that just cleared it right up, and I knew right away where he was talking about. <laughs> so, so if, like me, you a little weak on your world geography, I went to a map, and if you look at the boot of Italy... Uh, The sea immediately to the east, to the right, as you look at the map, is the Adriatic Sea. And the landmass across that Adriatic Sea to the south is Greece, 
and to the north is what was the province of Illyricum, present-day Yugoslavia and Albania. And Paul's task was to lay foundations for the church in that whole wide arc. And he says that he had, we'll see in just a moment, that he had finished doing that. But it was his task to take the gospel where it had never penetrated before. And just as an aside, I want to remind us that there's a great need for the same kind of ministry that Paul exercised in his day, in our day. I read some astonishing statistics in just this last week. That at this point in the life of the worldwide church, only one-tenth of one percent of the total income of Christians around the world is going into missions. One-tenth of one percent of our total income is devoted to missions. And of that one-tenth of one percent, only one-tenth of that is going to plant the church among unreached peoples, people who are not currently in range of a gospel witness. So that means one one-hundredth of one percent of the total income of Christians is devoted to planting foundations where the gospel has not gone. And I uh, would suggest that we need to uh, correct this. One of the opportunities you can have to help do that is to uh, consider supporting Tom and Melissa Manning. This is one of their tasks, to take the gospel to the Muslim world. There are currently 600 cities in the world of over a million people each which forbid evangelism and the presence of foreign missionaries. And in order for us to plant the gospel in these megacities, 600 of them, 1.3 billion people in the world currently beyond the reach of the gospel message. We need to be creative and send people with dedication and a heart like the Mannings, like Tom Brown, like Dan and Monica Brown, like Raynette Blesson, Nicholas and Danelle Ivins, all of them working with unreached peoples at this point. Paul's task. Now, as he goes on to explain in verses 22 through 28, having or 29, having finished his task of laying the foundation in this wide arc of the Roman Empire, he wanted to move on. For this reason, that is because I've had a task to do of laying a foundation, I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ." Spain at this point was a relatively recent addition to the Roman Empire. It had been in, uh, the prize in a tug of war between North Africa and Rome for a couple of hundred years prior to this. And under Augustus, who was the emperor when Christ was born, uh, Rome or Spain had been pacified and was now totally under the control of Roman provincial governors. And because this was now within the borders of the Roman Empire, Paul's heart began to beat within him to begin to lay a foundation for the church in Spain, which at this point represented an unreached people group. And he realized that after his trip to Jerusalem with this offering for the poor in Judea, 
he would be able to make his way westward, stop in Rome on the way, be refreshed by the Romans, be outfitted for the task, and then move on to Spain and begin to plant the gospel there. And that was his desire. According to Clement of Rome, a church leader in the Roman church, about 30 years after this, Paul did reach his destination and planted the gospel there in the region of Spain. But first, Paul says, I've got one task I need to take care of. Uh, he indicated that the churches in Greece, Macedonia and Achaia were the two provinces in current-day Greece, had generously given to minister to the needs of the poverty-stricken saints in Judea who were undergoing a wave of persecution at this time, losing homes, possessions, businesses because of the hostility of the Jewish leadership. And the believers in Greece were burdened by this and had given generously. Notice Paul says twice they were pleased to do this. You never find in the New Testament any sort of coercion or pressure on people to give. It's always voluntary and given freely. And they had given to minister to this need. Always in the New Testament you'll find the believers are to give for two things. One, to support ministers of the gospel. And secondly, to supply the needs of the poor. Uh, might be worthwhile for you to re-examine your own commitment to giving and see how many of your resources, how much of the resources you've set aside to give to the Lord's work, how much of it goes to support uh, ministers of the gospel, and how much of it goes to support the poor. And I would encourage you to give thought to increasing the percentage, of the relative percentage that you give to those who are in financial need. So this is Paul's first task. In fact, he says in verse 27 that the Gentiles had a responsibility to give in material ways to the Jewish believers because they had received so much from them spiritually. If you've, uh, someone has ministered to you uh, spiritually and the only way or the best way you have of showing your gratitude to them is in some material fashion, Paul would encourage you to do so. In fact, he says the Gentiles in this case had a spiritual debt to pay which they fulfilled by their material generosity. Now, in verses 30 through 33, to conclude the chapter, Paul, I think, by his own example, gives us two more key ingredients to a life of impact. Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, and notice, by the way, how intense his appeal is here. He doesn't simply say, I urge you to do this, but he says, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. So he's intense and earnest in his appeal to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So the fifth thing that we are to do to have a life of impact is to enlist the prayer support of other people. If there's some way in which you desire to be of service to people around you, get others praying along with you. The word that Paul uses to strive together is from the athletic world, the world of, of, of uh, Greco-Roman wrestling, actually. And it's a term of conflict and contention. And Paul says, if you are praying with me, then it's just as if you are shoulder to shoulder with me in doing the battle. So prayer for Paul was not, something, not simply some kind of nice gesture or a way of remembering people, but was, it was a way of doing battle with others who were in the ministry, of striving together shoulder to shoulder with them. And the earnestness of his appeal to get others to pray for him is that he knew that this worked, that prayer on behalf of others is not simply idle, it is effective. So that's the fifth thing, to get others praying with us. And in 6, we see in verses 31 and 32, we need to be flexible. His prayer was that I may be delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. 
so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Verse 31, he asked the believers to pray for two things. First of all, pray that my offering that I bring will be acceptable to the saints. And that prayer was answered by God with a yes. The other prayer request that Paul had was that he might be delivered from those who were disobedient in Judea. Now, Paul's plan at this point for his personal ministry was to take this offering to Jerusalem, spend time with the church in Jerusalem, and then in a matter of months to be on his way to Rome and then on to Spain. I'm sure at this point in his life he expected to be in Spain in a matter of six months. And yet what happened when he went to Jerusalem is through a trumped-up charge by the Jewish authorities, he was placed in chains and spent the next five years of his life in prison. And when he reached Rome, it was in chains as a prisoner of the emperor of Rome. And it was three and a half years later before he made his way to Rome, not a mere six months. And so one thing we learn from that is we need to be flexible. We may start a ministry and have glorious expectations for the way this ministry will go and how it will reach people and minister to people. And we may find in a matter of weeks that the whole thing apparently has collapsed around our feet and is in total disarray. And yet we learn from Paul's example not to panic, not to get discouraged, but to continue to trust God to be at work through us, even in a circumstance which seems to be a total catastrophe. If you think for a moment the number of things that came out of God's no answer to this prayer, you realize. For one thing, we would not have the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both of which were written to prepare Paul's lawyer for his appearance before Nero. That's almost half of the New Testament would be missing if God had said yes to this prayer instead of no. We have four of Paul's epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and letter to Philemon that were written that would not otherwise have been written. We also know from Philippians that the believers in Rome were emboldened to share the gospel in that city because of Paul's example in prison. And also we know that because of Paul's ministry to the Praetorian soldiers who were guarding him, that the gospel had penetrated right to the very heart of the Roman Empire, none of which would have happened if God's answer to this prayer had been yes. So we need to be prepared to be flexible in our desires and plans for ministry and allow God to change our expectations and change our ministry. But I'm convinced if we're willing to learn from the Romans' example and from Paul's examples that our lives can more and more begin to count. We realize, first of all, we need to be full of goodness, to have an honest love and concern for people. Secondly, be filled with knowledge, grow in our understanding and knowledge of the truth of God. Third, be willing to admonish others, to have the courage to speak up at the right time to share a word of truth. Fourth, realize that it all depends upon Christ, the one who is at work in me, and not on my own resources. Fifth, enlist the, the prayer support of other believers to come alongside. And sixth, be flexible. Realize that God has the right to change our plans. Now, if we understand this and, and put this into practice, I think our lives really can begin to count. Even though we're ordinary, unimpressive people, God can do extraordinary things through us. In Ian Thomas's book, The Saving Life of Christ, he imagines this dialogue between God and Moses at the foot of the uh, burning bush. Moses was an ordinary man who was convinced of his ordinariness. 
And yet his attention obviously was captured by this bush which burned and yet refused to burn up. And Ian Thomas imagines God saying this to Moses. You thought that there must be something about it, that is the burning bush, at once peculiar and wonderful, something unique that it could burn and burn and burn and go on burning and yet not burn itself out. But you are wrong. You are quite wrong. Do you see that bush over there? That scruffy, scraggy-looking thing? That bush would have done. Do you see this beautiful bush over here so shapely and fine? This bush would have done. For you see, Moses, any old bush will do. Any old bush, if only God is in the bush. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to acknowledge to you this morning that we really do desire to have our lives count for you. We want our lives to matter to others. We pray that you'd help us to proceed in simple faith. We pray that we would have the privilege, the unexpected, glorious privilege this week of being used by you to encourage someone and to realize with great joy that you've been the one to do this and you've simply used us as a vessel. I want to trust you with this, Lord, and, and ask you to be gracious to us in this regard. Amen.